0: Welcome to another episode of the Flying Tortuga Brothers podcast. The Flying Tortuga Brothers are artists Carl Stoveland and Shannon Torrance who are endeavoring to be named artists in residence on Loggerhead Key in the Dry Tortugas National Park in September of 2020. This podcast is a series of interviews with artists who have done residencies and interesting conversations with people who can help along the way. So grab a cup of coffee or your beverage of choice, sit back, and enjoy the show. This episode of the Flying Tortuga Brothers is brought to you by Camping Florida Keys. Camping Florida Keys is the premier rental equipment outfitter for Camping Dry Tortugas National Park and the Florida Keys confidently and comfortably. So reserve, relax, and return your gear today to minimize planning and maximize your vacation. They can be found at CampingFloridaKeys.com and all the usual social media outlets. Camping Florida Keys. Enter podcast into the promo code on the website to receive a 10% discount. Welcome to the Flying Tortuga Brothers podcast. I'm your host Carl Stoveland, along with my sidekick and co-host Shannon Torrance. Hey Shannon. Hey how you doing Carl? Oh, Off to a great week. We just recorded a, an absolutely great interview last week with kelly clark in fact that was the tail end of last week and through her efforts and um being willing to help us out we have landed a killer interview today that everyone's gonna
1: love and i cannot wait i've done some research on this gentleman and his work is just phenomenal um so i can't wait to hear what he has to say
0: So who we are talking about is Harun Memedinovich, and he is the co-creator of the Sky Glow project. Sky Glow, for those that
1: don't know, it's basically uh, light pollution um, and areas with no light pollution and areas with a lot of light pollution. He's looking at the difference between the two. And uh, man, the footage he's getting out of that. It's absolutely astounding.
0: And with that, welcome to the podcast, Haroon. Uh Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Uh, I've spent the last couple of days watching your videos, and they're just blowing me away. They are so good.
2: That's uh, well, all lies, but thank you. No, I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've been at it for a while, and um, and I think we got a little better as, as the time went on um, at doing these videos. And uh, it started really as two guys experimenting with the medium and um, having finally the equipment which could photograph the night sky that didn't cost millions of dollars, so you know it started with just experimentation and some of it worked and some of it just didn't work and there were a lot of mistakes made and and as the time went on, I think we got better and um, so yeah, that's it's been off and on uh, six years now of uh, work on it.
1: That's pretty crazy. I mean. Um, Watching your videos, I realized um, that a lot of it had to do with the equipment and that you ended up going with all cannons with all the same lenses because they were interchangeable and made made it a lot easier to film your time-lapse work.
2: Uh, Yeah, because having 10 different cameras with all different lenses would have been um, just incredibly inefficient Um, and actually probably visually uneven experience, potentially, at the end. Um, so we, you know, the very first camera that came out that could give us some decent results of the night sky was the 5D Mark II. I mean, that camera, just in general, was ahead of every, everybody at the time. Uh, it was the first DSLR that could shoot video as well, and uh, it was a very transformative camera and i don't think we've had a dslr that's come out since that's been as revolutionary as the 5d mark ii but for us 5d mark ii had this other sort of thing that most people really weren't paying attention to all that much at a time because the video was so exciting Uh, but they didn't realize that that camera actually gave you some decent results shooting at night it had a sensor that didn't completely fall apart when you're shooting the milky way or
0: You're right. I I shoot a 5D Mark II. It's one of my favorite cameras. Other than my Pentax 645, it's the the main camera in my stable still. I haven't switched up to another version, and that's when I've done some of my Milky Way work
1: on. I think the best thing he mentioned, um, and what I've seen, um, and he talks about it, is that in all climates, this camera never gave up. Just...
2: Never, never, never. It really never did. And it was really a matter of in, in very bad situations that sometimes you find yourself in when it's minus 50. It was just a matter of heating the batteries. The camera always was kept going pretty strong. And um, it was really lithium that would give you only the only trouble uh, because it would solidify and it would uh, drain. Uh, very quickly so in those situations you just had you had to keep the camera heated and uh, the rest of the way it just it just worked pretty much i mean um, no really piece of canon equipment has ever f- failed on us we we've used the c c300 mark ii and that never failed even at, at these really low temperatures even non-heated uh it's it's held up because it has its own sort of uh fan system in it and so on so it regulates its own temperatures somewhat so it's re- really Uh, The equipment has held up pretty good in rugged conditions, to say the least.
1: And apparently, so have you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, uh, that 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 I'm not so sure about. That we'll find out on the back end how many years that shaved off uh, off of our lives. Okay. uh, (laughs) You know, because yeah, because doing spending that many um, months and years shooting all night is not good for your body. It's it's just not good for you, ultimately physically or Or mentally anymore because I mean one thing is to go and have this amazing experience of the night sky for a night a completely different thing is to have 15 nights in a row of shooting and Then five six hours of driving between each location and I think eventually it's just it becomes a dangerous situation
0: Truly truly. Well, you're obviously uh, very passionate about the work and before we really spend a lot of time on the technical stuff because as A fellow photographer I could get down in the weeds on that and bore everyone else to tears but let's talk a little bit about um, Skyglow and what you guys are doing with it what what is that driving force behind all the work that you've put into it?
2: Uh, Well, Initially this was all just kind of experimenting just it just so happened that um, both me and Gavin who I went to school with we did the same graduate school at American Film Institute in Los Angeles Uh, it just so happened that two of us on, on our own, in our own ways, you know, find ourselves shooting the night sky uh, once that was possible with the cameras, and um, we would see each other's stuff on Facebook basically, and be like, oh, that's interesting, somebody else is doing what I'm doing, and you know, he'd comment on the stuff I was doing, and so on, and um, that that kind of got us together, and we decided, why don't we just go and do some shooting uh, around the Southwest, especially because he was mostly really working in California, and I at that time was spending more time in northern Arizona so I invited him to come over and he, he was pretty blown away by the night skies in you know southern Utah and northern Arizona which I still think give or take are probably some of the best in the country.
0: Yeah they, absol- they absolutely are for a good night sky getting out into the Florida Keys obviously the dry Tortugas that we're going to talk about but yeah in the, uh, the southwest you've got a lot of opportunities for some good dark skies and some good structures to Play off of as well.
2: Yeah, so that that led us to basically start shooting together, and eventually we started cutting videos together, and just putting out stills. And eventually we arrived at that point where we were thinking, do we just you know is this just going to be a forever a kind of a hobby, or do we want to make something more concrete out of it? And we knew just by default, if we were to do this as a larger project, it would have to rest upon this idea that we have a vanishing night sky because you know year by year it becomes harder to shoot. Uh, for a variety of reasons, the night sky. And um, we knew that that was maybe the most, uh, 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 the thing that we can contribute the most, I think just socially speaking, is that we made people people aware of kind of the poor choices we make in civilization with lighting. And that has cost us the night sky, but it's also costing us in many other ways, including our health and animal health and, and, and even plants are affected by light. And we didn't think much of it, you know, because... We've been born into light. Pretty much everybody who was born after 1910, you know, 1920, especially, has had light as as a presence in their life. Their whole their whole life, the night was always lit up to some extent, and now it's really brightly lit up. Um, it's like a day out there. We just call it an artificial day. Uh, that we really didn't think much of. What does that really do to the you know to the planet? Because the the, the Earth is accustomed, through millions of years, to have, a, a, you know, every place on Earth has a certain amount of darkness uh, every year. And uh, what, what happens if we completely remove that? And we've now started to understand just how devastating that is to certain animal species which completely have disappeared, uh, and some that are on brink of disappearing because of the light. Uh, And, of course, our own health. So there's been many things, and we sort of figured, okay, we can use the visual medium, we can use the art to bring awareness, uh, to forward the agenda of the people who have been fighting pretty hard, like International Dark Sky Association, to try to influence policy, to get lighting to be better. Uh, But we could also contribute something to that fight by giving sort of the the, the visual component to it. So instead of people talking about it, they can see things and come to realize, oh, well, now we're beginning to understand, okay, we're not seeing the night sky. Why are we not seeing it? Okay, we're, we're getting an idea. The further you get away from the city visually, you start getting that kind of clarity about, you know, what does light do? It's like, a. I remember seeing one really interesting visualization of light pollution, which was somebody visualized it as mountains. Like the brighter the city was, it looked like a larger mountain. And that is kind of what it is. It's like this big dome that reaches up into the sky and just kind of swallows up. All all the stars and in the, in the night sky, and you'll see that especially shooting towards LA, you can you can kind of go 200 miles out, and you start seeing this big big dome in in uh, the direction of LA, and you can see how far that light reaches up. And uh, so we knew, you know, if we did that, it would it would make it easier on some people that spend more time talking about it to actually have some visual tools uh, as far as explaining people what's going on. And, uh, and I feel like in the six years that we've been working on it. I feel like in a sort of everyday situations, I hear more and more the discussion of the of of light pollution. It's it's become much more prevalent of a discussion uh, uh, across the country than it was at the time when we started, where very few people were talking about it. But now I find that a lot of people are talking about it, and I also find <clears throat> that it's a unifying. Discussion meaning uh, as opposed to many other things we can talk about like global warming There's a lot of people out there that just disagree that global warming is happening now I'm at that point in my life where I'm just too tired to try to fight it (laughs) uh, uh, Directly with them. I just think it's a waste of time. We are with you However, this this whole thing with light pollution. I mean we went to like Alliance, Nebraska, which is like Trump land You know, it's like 99% Trump voters and we were in a high school gymnasium with like thousand people from the city and the Q&A lasted 90 minutes. I mean, people just wouldn't stop asking questions about how they can improve uh situation around in town in order to be able to see the and, and sort of stem the tide to be able to see the night sky. They, they started to realize, oh, we've taken this thing for granted. And they had, they were actually incredibly engaged and interested in this discussion, even though politically we couldn't disagree more. Um but this was something that was bringing us together. So I felt like, wow, this can be a very big unifying factor as well, you know, because it's, it hasn't been polluted by discussion, you know, or kind of a, and and sort of like lobbyist interests and and sort of like dirty words.
1: So true. So true.
2: And suddenly this, this is like a way to start discussing something. And I think we've found a way to also talk about it from a financial standpoint, which is very important. As much as we can say we should care about the night sky and this should be a spiritual thing or whatever. I mean, here's my, my astronomy friends are probably rolling their eyes. Because- I think I
1: think there's a health um thing that goes with it as well, like you like you mentioned right. earlier. Um, so to get to get right to your point, I mean there have been studies that you know, I lived in England for a while and it was dark. I'm a native Floridian and um with a lack of sunlight that I had there, um I, I did get depressed after a while. Um, and the melancholy was based on light. Basically, as soon as I came home, I was quite fine. And it, it happened to me again and again, as I would go back. So light really does affect us. Like you mentioned, it affects the planet. So with the pollution, less light, less night sky visibility. So, I mean, mother earth is mother earth. It's where we came from.
2: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and every day we learn more about it. So, and then we're trying to kind of contribute, um, sort of in the in that general effort. And uh, I don't know how long we're going to be able to keep going as far as two guys working on a project. But you know, our idea is to end up with a, a feature documentary film and and a few things that tie into it. Um, and you know, kind of feel like we have done our part. In this particular discussion and obviously we spend a lot of our of time on other environmental issues as well so it's been uh, especially for me it's been a very important thing uh, it's been kind of like a, a priority to choose to work on projects which have to do with the environment because it is the most pressing thing i feel at, at the moment it's not uh, all the worrying that's happening in the world because that is going to be infinitesimally worse once the environment a devastating environment effects kick in
0: yeah so, mo- mother nature's going to win that war if we don't start oh yes. playing by the rules a little bit and i think you're absolutely right with thinking about with light pollution everyone can get around it you're right because it's not something that was talked about and its effects really <laughs> snuck up on us with industrialization you know Everyone loved having all this artificial light and being able to extend their day, and it's only, you're right, in the last decade that it's come to the minds of architects and designers and city planners that they have to be responsible for the the night sky in their cities, and you know, we've got the extra thing uh, being coastal Floridians is that we've got the turtles. So we're trying to right. keep the sky dark on the coastline so that those little guys can find their way back to the water.
2: Yeah, they've been, yeah, exactly. Some of the m- most affected animals. Um, and that was another one of those cases where they didn't even figure it out until way later. It's just that we just, we are so far behind in understanding light pollution impacts that, that I mean, when you look at the studies done on it, it's so few studies Compared to just about everything else, um, that we we are yet to understand fully what's happening here. So,
0: yeah, I um, think you're absolutely yeah. right, and I think. It, the only thing to do right now is to get on this right now and, and be involved in it. And everybody can pitch in in little ways with, um, you know, how much lighting is in their yards and how they schedule their, their yard lights and, and that stuff. That's, every little bit helps, especially with the cities. And you were talking about the, the light dome over Los Angeles, and you're absolutely right. Anyone who's taken a camera out at night and tried to, you know, been really inspired by photos like yours and, cinema like yours that they've seen on the web and want to get out there and try it you know the availability of the tools to do it is you know for a thousand dollars in camera and lens you can get out there on a good tripod and you can you can take some of these shots but you have to be in the right place it's not like when i was growing up you know i'm thinking of the early 70s when i lived on a mountain 50 miles from new york city and you could see all the stars
1: and you have to you have to have the knowledge that you have you have to know your f-stops. You have to know how to shoot that shot, you know?
0: That's true, but YouTube is an amazing thing for being able to at least start to try and do those things. Shannon was mentioning you started as a still photographer. Is that right?
2: Uh, well, my Actually, my uh, background is as far as um, college was actually studied screenwriting and directing. So it was not actually related to the camera Okay. at all. But camera has been uh, kind of a hobby uh, since I was a little kid, um, I think somebody handed me a camera when I was like three or four years old, so I started taking shots, and um, and I had a long period, a long break uh, in my childhood where I wasn't able to. I was in Bosnia during the, the Yugoslav Wars, mm-hmm. and um, at that time, we were just trying to stay alive, um, so all I could do at that mm-hmm. time was I did a lot of comic books, and I used to draw I was find, trying to find different sort of outlets uh, to get my mind uh, out of the you know, difficult spot that we were in, to try to get my mind off of everything that was happening. So, uh, so I took a little break there uh, for a few years, and I hadn't really touched the camera. And then when I came to the U.S. Uh, to study, uh, I got back into it, and I started to take shots, and I was doing a lot of zipping across the country because... Um, uh, my family was in D.C., so um, I would go D.C. L.A. L.A. D.C., and then in that, in those, on those journeys, I would make stops along the way and take shots. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the night sky was was one of those things I always wanted to photograph. It was <clears throat> something that was important to me as a kid. I was in a privileged position, I suppose, of growing up partly in Bosnian uh, uh, sort of rural areas, um, and in those, you could see the night sky. Very well compared to most of the rest of Europe, because it was mainly undeveloped, mainly wilderness. Um, it was akin to um, something like the Randeck Mountains in New York, like where there's still some uh, visibility sure. uh, left. Even even with all the bad lighting around it, you still can kind of see stuff. And I had some of that ability to at least see the Milky Way in, in the most light polluted continent um at this point which is europe europe is almost entirely rendered it's class one class two night sky non-existent so we were in one of the best spots in fact one of the darkest areas left in europe is still in that part of balkans wow. um so i had that privilege and i remember seeing the night sky there and it was a, a, a thing that we were talking about as well as kids like uh you know we were talking about the night sky we were also talking about an, an animal that i hadn't really connected to the night sky at that time which is fireflies we had abundant fireflies there uh, because it was so dark uh, that, it, you know, I, we kind of grew to really like this animal. And it was it was an animal we spent the entire you know good chunk of the summer with <laughs> and really enjoyed having fireflies around. And this sort of memories of these fireflies and stars live in my mind strongest of anything from my early childhood. So that's why I knew I would have to come back to it at some point, because it was it was I, I started to realize how rare that experience was anymore.
1: I watched a documentary with you earlier today, and it was very interesting that you talk about your relationship to people and the landscape. And you said that you um, started with taking pictures of people and you realized that the landscape behind them became more and more interesting. Do you remember this conversation? Yeah. I mean, uh,
2: to me, the, uh, my understanding of what was happening to the landscape um it's just something that grew over the years. I kind of always, I think what it was, it was really out of an environmental concern. Uh, Part of it is that I just knew through the, you know, I I had shot thousands of people and I found out by shooting all of them, asking them where they would like to go to get out of their daily life situations. They often would say nature, like a nature is like a place of escape, but there's like a vanishing nature out there. You know, like we are destroying What's left of it, and and I grew up in Europe where there was hardly any any of it left anymore because they'd paved paved over everything and they put hotels on tops of mountains. And nature really wasn't about wilderness; it was about recreation, yes. which are two completely different things. They, they they're not related things. Like you going out and getting exercise. Is not the same as spending time in wilderness. It's just simply not.
1: A pruned nature is not nature.
2: <laughs> no, it's it's not. And the Europe has sanitized its nature and it's made it something to be feared. And that sort of sentiment has now carried over to a lot of the planet uh, through globalization, through through what we call civilization. There is a, almost a contempt at times for nature. Definitely by business, you know, if you can wreck it, not a big deal because we can make a lot of money, right? So, so in other words, there is a general contempt it, it, that comes with civilization for nature. And then everybody's also shocked that there's people out there with, with depression, which is incredibly linked. One and the other, like the disappearance of nature is a disappearance of one definitive space or wilderness, really one definitive space where we can uh, be centered. It's kind of like looking at the night sky gets you to understand where you're at in the universe. And it's a very grounding thing. Uh, and the and, and same is the daytime experience of the wilderness and that we're losing that and we're fearful of it more and more because we're not seeing it. We're not used to it anymore. And we don't care when it's destroyed all that much. I mean, I still find that most people really, really don't care that there's an assault on the public lands of US, for example. Uh, Which has been steady and has always been there, and and it's they're kind of revving it up again. Um, You know, there's only so much something like a Sierra Club can push back. Only so much that they can do. Um, You know, at this point, there's just an all-out assault.
0: You're you're absolutely Uh, right, and one of the things that I've run into, which is exactly what you're saying, is that like you're out there trying to make awareness for the night sky. One of the things that I do as a photographer is I spend a lot of time in uh, the Everglades and in Big Cypress Swamp in particular. And it amazes me how much time I have to spend convincing people, even ones who look at these gorgeous photographs of Big Cypress, and they're like, you go into the swamp, you know, and they're afraid of it. And it's, you know, it's something to be feared rather than something that is it's a holy experience for me when I get in that water. Honestly, if I didn't have my camera and I was just in there to walk around, I'm really okay with that. It's a, it's such a, you're right, it does so many good things for us to get into real wild nature and have some experience with it.
2: Yeah, 100%, and, and I just saw people going there, taking people out of the cities because they wish to be out of nature and seeing how transformative it was for them. And you can see within a day, that they were changing again, that they were going back to something. They were going back often to sort of their childlike selves, their childhood. Um, they were reconnecting with something. So that was great. And But the sort of the, the, the bad side of it all was just seeing the conditions out there and just how year by year places were just vanishing or were worse than the previous year and just learning about certain things, learning, say, that there's, you know, four uranium mines at Grand Canyon, you know, like, People should really be much more concerned about that.
1: I don't um, think a lot of people even know that's true.
2: Yeah, they, they don't. And, and and this is so vast. And you talk about it and people don't care often. They, they just don't. They're like, oh, well, that's bad, but they move on. Or, yeah. they, uh, or you talk to people who say they care and you find out they really don't care because, I mean, has there been a single major documentary on the subject? Not really. I mean, there's been. One, right, you could argue, which was a very whitewashed sort of doc by Ken Burns on and, and creation of the national parks and you know and, and so on and uh but even in his doc he spends almost no time on exploitation of public lands.
1: So let's and, can, yeah. can can we talk about uh the documentary that you've been involved with, um Ice on mm-hmm. fire. Yes. Um, amazing, absolutely astounding. Um, how did that come about? How did, how did that play out from where you are now?
2: Uh, so the, the people behind, uh, Ice and Fire. So originally it started as Leonardo DiCaprio wanted to make a movie about methane.
1: And I just Um, want to state while you're speaking that you were the cinematography, cinematographer on this movie. Yeah. Uh, so brilliant. Absolutely gorgeous footage.
2: So what had happened was he wanted to make a movie about uh, methane and because they knew that it was a major potentially what do we call extinction level event uh, issue. and they wanted to make a movie about it but at that time. Uh, they're actually just getting started on what's now become a much more vast um, you know research effort on on what's happening with methane especially in the Arctic. Um, but at that time, uh, nobody really wanted to finance the movie. Uh, they talked to almost all the studios in Hollywood, and they weren't interested. Um, and one of the reasons is, of course, the amount of um, different um, uh, people that would be endangered by, I guess, the discussion about methane. There's a lot of industries that don't want methane discussed. Surely. Uh, so I think there's been a lot of fear ab- around that subject. And I remember even Al Gore said, when they asked him about that, he said, we shouldn't talk about it because it detracts from real issues, which is <laughs> an inaccurate statement scientifically um uh, it's an irresponsible statement actually but uh but in any case um he wanted to do this finally hbo decided to do it and they were basically the only place to say yes um and um at that time i really wasn't involved at all uh with that crew um the movie was uh given to tree media in Los Angeles that had worked on another movie with DiCaprio some years ago called Eleven Tower and many different shorts. Uh, In fact, they have the longest working relationship um, of his, uh, I think, uh, of all of his collaborators. They they go back to like mid uh, or early 2000s, I think. Um, So anyway, um, they had this movie going and they were looking for people to shoot it And they wanted somebody um, or a group of people that really cared about nature processes. So um, somebody had recommended what I was doing with BBC Earth in particular to them. They looked at it and said, this is exactly what we want. We want some kind of a combination of time lapse and um, uh, aerials and all these kinds of things. Just the, the scope of it was what they had in their mind. And yeah. that—that's kind of how we met. They kind of came to me, which is, in a way, you could say, a lottery kind of a situation. Because usually these kind of movies go to people with whom you have a longer relationships, or people who, you know, who have been around the industry a very long time. I'm a fairly young cinematographer. Um, most a lot of people that work for BBC—they—they've been working 50, 60 years. Yeah. So, uh, so in a way, it was luck, um, and uh, them putting trust in me to single-handedly do the movie and to go to all these locations often by myself to shoot uh so they just trusted that and, and hopefully i delivered it's up to the audience to decide
1: i think you delivered day. i mean your your footage is epic i mean they're they're broad they make you breathe you actually take in what you're watching I, I i think they knew what they were doing to be honest and i'm not just stroking your ego i'm telling you as i saw it um yeah, they knew what they were doing. They did really good.
2: So, so yeah, that was two years of our lives, and and I felt like I needed to do something. And that was good to get something of that scale, but I needed, regardless of that, I, sort of in my mind, I felt like I needed to do something that was uh, global warming related because I felt, uh, the way I've always felt about the global warming issue is if we're unable to do anything about it, and there's probably more of a case to be made um now that we won't be able to do anything about it because we tend to be reactive rather than proactive as species so when we react it's gonna be too late to react um one could say that uh if we want to be cynical for a second uh but at least what i felt if i worked on some stuff that related to that and that had a clear message as to what's happening and what i like about this movie is we ended up really making it a movie about solutions not just movie about problems, because there's so many solutions out there that we couldn't possibly fit in in a movie. So we had to just fit the ones we could that we felt fit the narrative. But there's many, many more, and I felt there was this very sort of positive world out there that we can make a lot of changes, regardless of all the negativity. But I felt just sort of in my own mind, even before I was hiring this movie, I had to work on something like it because uh, if it all goes to... uh, goes to crap at the end and and the worst fears manifest then at the very least what people won't be able to do is come to me and say well why didn't you do something about it why didn't you you know tell us about it why didn't you well i did right so you you won't be able to come to me now to complain about it like i put in two years of my life um working pretty hard freezing at minus 50 on something so i've done my part um On, on sending that message. So, and uh, and scientists do their part and innovators do their part and filmmakers do their part. And now it's up to everybody else to get it together.
1: On a creative level, I, th- I think that's what all artists do. I mean, um, at the end of the day, you're projecting what you see and what you feel, what's relevant, and you're hoping for whatever, it- for whatever it's worth, that somebody will get it, that somebody will see it. And uh, I think I think your vision ha- has had an overarching, it's been like an overarching eye that I can see. It's like it's filmed from above. So you're showing people like here's, you're not seeing it in this microcosm of your day-to-day life. You know, you go to work, you get Starbucks, you throw the cup in a trash can, you know, that kind of a thing. Like recycling, you're showing people like here here's the sky here's the pollution that pollution keeps this amount of light from coming through or um this this is what's happening to our environment this is what why people are feeling the way they feel because we're attached to nature we're part of nature um in some in some ways it's just it's beautiful i mean that's what artists are here to do i think you are the exemplary um artist well, your, thank you. Your message is reaching me. <laughs> and I think it's it's, <laughs> it's
0: reaching here to me on several levels to the environmental absolutely and we really plan to if we are chosen as the artists in residence for the Dry Tortugas in 2020, um, I'm making a documentary film that Shannon's going to play a big part in because he's going to be the only other person on the island. Um, So he's going to star in and be gaffer and sound guy and whatever else I can talk him into being at any given moment. But the our focus is going to be and that's why we've jumped so deeply into social media now a year ahead of time is so that we can make a documentary about what the effects of social media are on us as artists and what the isolation will do to us and hopefully we'll have an explosion of creativity that will blossom because the noise level in our ears, like you're talking about light and I'm talking about the technical noise level that we have and the time that gets taken away from us every day, playing with Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. So we're, we're right there on the same page. I totally see what you're doing and I
1: really appreciate all the hard work that you've been putting into it. So how much time were you in the uh, – I watched your video in the Dry Tortugas. How much time did it take you to create that footage?
2: So the Dry Tortugas was an interesting one. Um, I hadn't even known about this park and, at all. Um, and what had happened was I was doing a little research on na- um, Night Sky's Division of uh, National Park Service, which was, which was started by these two guys, uh, Chad Moore and Dan DeRisco who were basically scientists uh, who decided one day, why don't we start paying attention to the night? Like we were doing almost no nighttime research in the national parks. And they started a division basically without any funding at the time, all purely through grant writing about trying to go out and measure levels of light pollution and sort of gauge as to what the light pollution situation was in the national parks in with hard science data. And so I was following a little bit um, what they were doing and, you know, where they had gone and what, and Dr. actually came up. And one of the first things that hit me is I looked at all the data and stuff on Dr. and I thought, well, it's actually kind of surprising that this isn't a nighttime park. Uh, like it's not a dark sky park. It's not, it hasn't been declared one because it's like perfect for it. It basically has no light on there except for the couple of lighthouses, which often aren't even functional. um, like why aren't there dark sky parks? I was looking into it and it turned out that the superintendent of the park was not interested in, in doing it because it would have meant that he had to turn those lighthouses off more often than he wanted to. So he sort of kind of, at that time, I don't know who that was, this was years ago. He kind of blew blew the, the blew them off when they came to talk to him because they wanted to make some suggestions about improvements for light there. And then um, hopefully IDA would have started a process with them to make them a, a protected place. Uh, for that, uh, but I'd heard about it. and I was like, okay I'm kind of curious to go out and see this place because it's of all the places on the East Coast to me It seemed like it would have been the best place give or take. I mean, it, it's definitely right up there with very north of Maine Or you know something like the southern end of the Outer Banks uh, Where you should get class one night skies and it's even better down there because you really the closest light was Key West Which isn't exactly the most irresponsible lit place in america um you know it's not like yet not Angeles very populated really yeah yeah so it's like when you see the dome of key west i almost laugh compared to most other cities i think it's it's doing pretty well comparatively um so anyway i thought okay this got to be one of the most uh, best remaining places on the east coast so i had to go shoot it and then i realized it's kind of complicated you had to get this permit to do this and then you had to you get on the boat and be dropped off there for three days it was like an adventure and at that time we really had no money backing the project that much so it was a, it was an effort to try to get out there it's definitely um, a place you have
0: effort. to want to go to it's not it's not an easy place to go camping for three days you have to really no. have done your homework and do your planning and um, have the gear that you need so that you can really do it well you're absolutely right it's I know. I think maybe that previous um, park superintendent may have been thinking i don't want all those all those more people coming to my park because it's it's a difficult park to get to
2: that's true that has played a role in many decisions in the past as far as trying to get dark sky accreditations has been worries about accommodations Uh, and that's why many parks have had to wait many years uh, because they needed to build campgrounds and Make their space basically night accessible because many parks, especially national monuments, they're not really intended to be places you stay at night. Um, they often are historical significance. Uh, they don't want people roaming around there and like vandalizing and, and so on. So it's kind of complicated. I, I understand. And it's the same with national parks. You don't want too many people, especially at night, you don't want too many people flashing lights everywhere. It kind of undoes your point. Uh, so part of having a night space for preserved night sky is also education of the people as to how they should behave in that space. And that is, we are so far behind on that issue. Exactly. You, places, you, you almost become yeah.
0: a victim of your own success because the more people yes. that get excited about doing what you're doing, you end up adding more to the problem.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like they made a reserve, you know, for fireflies in Smoky Mountains. <clears throat> and now that's become a huge tourist draw to the point where they have to have lottery in order to get on a shuttle in order to see them for a couple of hours and then get shuttled back. Well, the problem is there's people still show up with lights and they're going into a habitat, a protected habitat area with lights and that will cause problems. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always a give and take. And often one could argue there's more problems that come of it than good things. Um, So that's one of the kind of issues the national park system is yet to figure out fully. Is to how to deal with this issue and they they've certainly understood so far that lights have become a problem at night because uh, there was a proposal to ban all light painting, for example uh, in national parks because astrophotographers were, were causing ruckus by bringing giant lights and blasting them over like sides of mountains. And yeah I imagine
0: that's got to be absolutely detrimental to the wildlife just abs- that change oh, yeah. in their patterns. Oh, yeah,
2: no, absolutely. And in fact, we've made it a point over the years to, uh, if we can shoot something without using the light, that we just shoot something without using the light. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, if we do use the light, we tend not to use it in the protected areas like wilderness areas. We just don't do that. Uh, so in other words, we've, you know, and that was a learning curve for us as well, which was like, it's sometimes everything in you is like, oh, but maybe I should light it because it would look better. But it's like, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> That's where you have to be responsible uh so we've tried to minimize as much as we could any use of light and even like walking around with lights we we tend to now more so uh, than in the past uh try let us eyes adjust and then just walk in the dark because often your eyes adjust to the point where you can walk just fine you don't need to use lights and when you use lights use the red lights and so on mm-hmm. uh, so there's, there's some ethics related to that and you're right that it's you know one of the problems i suppose i've been a big supporter of all astrophotography being done because all of it raises awareness and that is a good thing. Uh the, the negative side of it has been the sort of irresponsible use of light and actually irresponsible treatment of people is what I've seen where somebody shows up and is and is kind of irresponsible using light and and not really giving chance for somebody else to take photos and it becomes like I mean I even was once I remember it was some years ago and it's probably a lot worse now, but I was at the Delicate Arch at Arches. And there were 20 photographers there at night to try to shoot. I mean, 20 people had walked up there and were trying to try to shoot. And then this one guy went around and told everybody, you know, I'm a professional photographer, you know, just to let you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which, of course, I was just he, packing up. He didn't and I see, it. He didn't see your a credential badge. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, let, let's see it. Like, I trust your receipts on that one. But, but in any case, it ended up like being a fist fight at some point because this guy was like, no, I'm going to have my three hours here and you guys can take your two shots and get, get off the mountain kind of a thing. And, uh, it ended up being a fight and it just so happened that there was a guy there who's was, who was a park ranger from, uh, Eastern park in the Eastern us. So he actually ended up subduing the guy and like dragging him off the mountain. Oh goodness. Um, uh, yeah, but so that's one of those things where it's like if you're going to go out and take shots, you got to be more responsible. You you must not be flashing lights because you're ruining the experience of other visitors, even if they're not there to take photos. And you're also ruining other people's photos. So in other words, you have to get off of this. I mean, it's, a, it's this addiction to light, even for people that should know better.
0: And it's not limited to um, just the night photography. I mean, if you look at places like... Um places in south carolina that have those beautiful live oaks Uh, they've they've ended up putting up chain link fences around the property and destroying the the layout of the the shot because people have been so inconsiderate with garbage and trampling and i know that there are areas in the palouse which right now is harvest time in late august and you get that beautiful light there and the old farmhouses and soft curves and it's just beautiful but They were getting workshop after workshop after workshop, and, you know, there are workshops and there are workshops, and the guys that, you know, are considerate and have already made arrangements with the property owners, those are the guys that you want to deal with, not the ones that barge onto the property without permission and just start knocking stuff over. I mean, it's you're right, it's prevalent throughout the entire photo world, I think. It's not limited to the dark skies, unfortunately, or... You know, it's it's par for the course with what we're dealing with. I think
2: it, it is, yeah, and it's yeah. I mean, it's it's. A, I think that's. I think the best case for what you're saying, which was to, I mean, it sucks to put it that way. Which was to basically create much more restrictions on access at national parks, meaning um, that you start limiting to more places to lottery sort of selections or whatever. It's complicated one. You know, it's not one where I have the answers as to what it should be done, but it, it is a problem that is going to be a growing problem, uh, unfortunately. So what are we doing?
0: Yeah, I think it's everyone's gotta take a step back and, and think about consideration for where they are. It's something that's taken a back seat for a lot of people. So we're gonna have to work towards getting back to that. I wanted to take a swing towards something that I put off a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, which is I, I didn't want to talk technical in the beginning and I, I don't want to get too technical, but I did want to make a comment about Just how, you know, you guys with your films are the real deal. They're so polished. The production value is just so great. And, you know, as I'm a newbie when it comes to filmmaking, I really just started playing around with the video capabilities of my camera as part of this project. I've been a photographer for 40 years, but I'm just getting into the film side of it. But what I noticed with each one of your videos that you have up and then we're going to share a link in our social media when we post this tomorrow. There are, you have the most amazing sense of movement throughout all of your pieces. They're not static, whether you're shooting on a rail or you've got a a pan head and a rail at the same time. It's just done so brilliantly. It's obvious to me that you studied being a director and that you know what you want to see behind the camera because it's it works so incredibly well and it really sets your work up so much higher than a lot of the other stuff that i've watched i agree carl it's amazing to watch
2: so you try to i mean one of the things that narrative filmmaking taught me and both me and gavin because we both studied to be directors uh was that there's some kind of a story that can be told just about in any circumstance if if that is what your intent is to tell one absolutely so in in the past um i've been a fan of a variety of different kind of filmmaking. I grew up very much in Hollywood filmmaking as a kid, and I was very much a fan of kind of traditional narrative Hollywood films. But as I got into really studying film, as I got to understand other ways one could do film, I came across films like Godfrey Reggio's movies like Cohen Scotsy and movies like that, which are basically experimental films with certain real clear narrative goals. And Mm -hmm. in his movie, it was, you know, about visually showing you the clash between nature and technology or nature and how we distribute labor or nature and how we conduct war like humans kind of painting humans as almost at times a foreign object in a landscape, like what they bring to the landscape is almost like an alien like presence.
0: Yeah. We are a virus on this planet.
2: Like, kind of exactly like a virus. And the beauty of it was that he did so without a single word ever being said in a movie, without a single person saying a thing, without any narrative being written, no titles, nothing. It was done purely through visuals, through montage, and through music. Wow. And you have to take your hat off to this guy where you can sit down, watch a movie for 90 minutes and completely understand what he wanted to say without any piece of text or dialogue or intellectual clarification being thrown your way. You just watch these movies, you take them in and you understand what the filmmaker's intent was. And that was like a huge, mind-blowing thing for me at that time. And I thought when I started working on a lot of these kinds of films... Well, this was an interesting challenge. How about going out there and telling little in little viral videos, or little bignettes. tiny little stories for two minutes, for three minutes where you have a bit of a story, a bit of an experience where you can be where you can be engrossed in it for two, three minutes and then step out and maybe it will change your day a little bit. You know, as an audience member, you might just shift your brainwaves a little bit without being like spelled out light pollution is bad this place is this instead of that you just take it in and just that's it that's all i'm asking you to do is you take two minutes don't look at your your text messages don't be distracted by other things put on a pair of headphones and be engrossed in something for two and a half minutes three minutes maybe four minutes at a time and then walk away and i still feel that when you do that you walk away with something that it shifts something in you at least for that one day and that is a in in, in our mind was all we wanted to do what we didn't know at the time when we started doing these videos is just how much interest there would be for them because some of them were out in like tens of millions of views well they're quick
1: they're quick enough for people to actually absorb them which is which is key so so the ones i watched today were three four five minutes long so you you get the They're time-lapse, so you you get, like, hours, but so quickly. And they are, to me, they were ethereal, and they come across in sort of a ghost-like way, which is kind of interesting, because when you're talking about things disappearing, basically the past is a ghost of what was. So I think you're presenting these quick ghosts for people to see of what was available, what you might be able to still see. Go look at it. You know, it's such, it's so aware. And if you boil it down
0: into those two and three minutes, they're, they're a visual feast, you know, because I keep coming back to the motion, but it's the, it's not just the, the stars moving across the horizon with one You know, solitary item to set it off against. That's a very still photo th- way of thinking about it. And Shannon, I blame you for my eye for this stuff now because you lent me those surfing videos and the skateboard videos that are so full of camera movement and Absolutely. panning. And yeah. I just adore that kind of camera work now. And I see that, and it just it I saw that coupled with this beautiful landscape nighttime stuff, and it just blew my mind. And I was just so. So thrilled to be able to uh, have the opportunity to sit down and talk to you today, Harun. It was just, it was so fortuitous. Our project is really starting to gain a little bit of a head of steam, and uh, we're really looking forward to what happens next. So I really want to, uh, for both Shannon and I, he'll actually say his own bit, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for spending almost an hour with us and talking to us about this, this project and about this work that is so important.
2: No problem. I'm, as I say, I'm here all day when I'm here all day (laughs) to (laughs) talk about it mostly because I try to get people turned on a little bit onto the issue. And even if they can't go and see these places or, or whatever it is, they can locally make impact on it in some in some way, especially with light pollution. So it's important to uh, get it out in as in as many forms and as many ways to as many ears and eyes, and and hopefully that'll lead. To some positive change at a time where everything seems to be negative so
1: well i just want to say that um after watching a lot of your work today i am like blown away and uh as carl said um we we're so happy to have had you on the podcast but i would implore you to not stop Eat the short ones no matter what happens if you're, if you're a homeless man on the street, keep your camera and keep making little, <laughs> little short movies because they're amazing.
2: Well, we, we've lived as homeless guys for, for years, you know, out of our cars making this stuff. So, you know, we're, we're used to the lifestyle. I can see say. it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you, you have that little hippie quality to you, which I love.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. We, I mean, I was doing my portrait project years ago. I was, you know, on the road, basically three, four years you know without pretty much having any kind of a permanent home so yeah so it's it's part of like being out in nature is to enjoy that type of stuff not not to be too preoccupied about convenience because it's going to be very inconvenient so you just accept the inconvenience and you in fact relish in it um you embrace it and um and then you can get some amazing stuff along the way because you're patient and you're waiting and you're you know i kind of see the work of some people that uh, blow me away and I'm like, I, I can't really do that. It's just the people that shoot animals in wilderness in particular, which is like, wow, the amount of patience that must take and the amount of focus and everything else and instinct and
0: yeah, I mean, so
2: on is incredible. That's um,
0: five hours of complete boredom sitting in a duck blind and then having to be ready at a second's notice to be able to uh, get the shot. It's
2: a, It's unbelievable and these people don't get any credit really for it. Um, I mean, at best, occasionally a certain little video comes out with, um, you know, with, with some amazing thing they may have caught for, you know, something like Planet Earth. But almost never do you see these people actually get credit for the amount of work that they do. And yet we see so much discussion about Hollywood cinematographers, uh, which I mean, frankly, are almost lazy in comparison because they have a huge budget. They're sleeping in you know incredible convenience they're millionaires, and they're they're making at times right and they're making like huge budget movies 200 300 million dollars and you're seeing the praises but really for what well,
1: right? your, I mean, work, times. Like, your yeah. work is going to be very impactful for your sacrifice i can tell you just by watching it um you're definitely making a difference
2: well, that—that's the hope, or at the very least, they can't yell at me later that—that that I wasn't trying. So,
1: <laughs> you won't hear me yelling.
0: <laughs> We're gonna wrap this up, so I just want to say uh, again, Haroon, thanks so much for spending time with us. I will have this probably finished editing on Wednesday and send a link out to you.
2: Okay, sounds good.
0: Great talking to you.
1: Thank Great you so talking. much. I will be following you uh, constantly. Thanks. All right. All right take care. Bye-bye. Right, wow. That was another
0: great episode. So much passion and such great work. I can't wait for our listeners to be able to listen to this podcast while they're watching the videos at the same time and uh, let Harun's passion for what he's doing really just take them over.
1: I think uh, Harun was one of our best guests so far. I mean, he just... Um, like Kelly and like Clyde, he just takes it to the next level. I mean, um, he's got the experience he's been out there and then he's talking directly to the environment. Um, I was, I was shocked by a few things he said, which I, I, I expected I would be. Um, and I think that he's going to be somebody that will make a difference in the future just because I think the work is that impactful.
0: The work is impactful. His passion is there. And, I love this kind of interview because he did all the heavy lifting. We asked one question and we got answers to five questions, which was really the way I love for these conversations to go. With that, we have a bit of good news for our listeners good news if you like the podcast anyway, in that towards the end of this week, I'll be going away and Shannon's got a trip coming up. So we're going to do one more episode this week that we're going to put out probably before the end of the week. And that'll be just the two of us. We're going to record one of Shannon's poems and we're going to talk about dry tortugas a little bit and also what's next for us and what we're working on.
1: Yeah, banter on banter on banter on banter with banters. Sounds good to me. I'm all about the banter. Or penance.
0: (laughs) With that, Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And Shannon, I'll talk to you in a couple of days.
1: Can't wait. Talk to you later, Carl. See you guys. Bye.